Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. It was 2012 when John and Amber walked into our house for the first time. They were new to our church. They'd been dating a little while and they wanted to get connected. We were living in Des Moines at the time. And over the next few months, we got to know them. They got engaged and so we celebrated with them. John and I would grab coffee every Tuesday morning at the, the, like the caribou that's connected to the gas station down there in Pleasant Hill. And uh, my wife and I did their premarital counseling. Our, uh, our daughter was their flower girl in their wedding. And uh, we helped them renovate and move into their first house. And I remember going, and going to the hospital and meeting their first child. And uh, over the next few years, they uh, would eventually have two more kids and they'd move into a different house. And around that same time, Sarah and I moved up here to Cedar Falls to be part of Candeo. And so we, we kept in touch with them a little bit, but like, you know, if you have like a long distance friendship, eventually we kind of like just kind of lost touch over the years, but uh, really fond memories with John and Amber and hadn't talked to them in probably, I don't know, four or five years. Uh, until last December, I got a Facebook message from John saying, hey, Jake, I know we've lost touch, but I uh, would love to talk. Would you have any time to, uh, to talk on the phone? And so I called him up and for the next hour or so, I mostly listened while John through tears would explain like the hardships of the last year and how he and Amber had been separated for the last two months. And so we talked, I tried tried to encourage him. We prayed together. Um, I was really grateful as he described the the men who were in his life, part of his church who were walking with him through this. And I hung up the phone. Fast forward to February 26th. It was a Friday around 12.30, right after lunch. I get a call from my friend Kyle who the first words that he said to me, when I pick up the phone, he says, Jake, I don't, I don't know how to say this, uh, but John killed himself last night. So then seven days later, my wife and I are at his church, sitting in his funeral. And for the hour and a half that his funeral lasted, I could not stop crying. I don't think I've cried that much ever. Maybe cumulatively, I don't know. And I've been been to quite a few funerals. I've done funerals. Um, Funerals by themselves are just incredibly difficult, sad events, absolutely. But the tears this day weren't tears of sadness. They were tears of anger. I wasn't angry at John. I wasn't angry at Amber. I was angry at death. I was angry at Satan for having put the lies into John's head that night of February 25th. For the first time in my life, I got a glimpse, I think just a small glimpse, of what Jesus must have felt 
as he approached the tomb of Lazarus. Maybe you remember back earlier on in John, when Jesus, his friend Lazarus had died, uh, he's already dead by the time Jesus showed up. And, and what it says in John eleven thirty eight 38, is then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. He goes to the tomb of, of his friend, deeply moved. And I think that, I think that word deeply moved is, is a pretty weak translation because literally what, what that phrase deeply moved means is that it means to snort with anger which means that when Jesus walked up to the tomb of his friend, he wasn't just sad, he was raging furious. Because here you have the author of life standing face to face with death, his cosmic enemy. My guess is this morning is that what I'm describing isn't something that many of you can't identify with. Many of you have felt the sting of death. You've tasted its bitterness even just before first service, getting a text that one of our members, his father passed away unexpectedly this morning. You've tasted the sting of death. And, but, but the reality is, is that while most of us in this room we accept in theory the fact that we're going to die. Like none of you would say, no, I'm, no, I'm invincible. Like I'm not, I'm not going to die. Like we accept in theory that we're going to die. But if we're honest, many of us lose consciousness of our own mortality. I think a lot by like, by the anesthetic of just mindless entertainment or just the busyness of life. I think sometimes we, we, we keep our heads so stuck into our phones, observing the lives of other people that we often don't even think that one day our life will end. And what I think, if, if there's any good that's come from COVID, I know sometimes it's hard to think that any good could come from COVID, but if any good has come from COVID, I think it, I think it is that we've all come a little closer to Lazarus's tomb. That death for the last two years has not been hidden away in like a hospice center or in a nursing home. It hasn't been hidden away in like a cemetery that's lined with trees and a fence. But death has been brought out of the shadows and thrust center stage. You see, in a world with an abundance of choices, COVID has reminded us that though we might be able to choose how we live, none of us can choose whether or not we will die. What we have here in John 18 and 19, these two chapters that were just read over us is, is the very center of the Christian faith. It's the very center of our faith because in these two chapters, what we see in Jesus's death is actually his response to death. And I think with this being the center of our faith, this passion narrative, you could say, it, it's incredibly appropriate that we would approach this text with reverence, with a sense of its holiness. And 
uh, and probably with, with few, fewer words than maybe normal. Jesus accomplished our salvation with few words, and so it's probably appropriate that, uh, that I use few words to describe it this morning. So I want to keep things simple, um, and I want to show you four things about the death of Jesus, four things about Jesus' death. Firstly, I want to show you the reason for his death. Number two, I want to show you his authority over death. Number three, the accomplishment of his death. And then number four, how we should respond to his death. The reason for his death, his authority over death, the accomplishment of his death, and how we should respond to his death. So firstly, the reason for his death. The reality is that you don't have to be a Christian to know that there's something terribly wrong with our world. Like some of you might, might be here this morning and the only reason you're, you're not into the God thing, you're not into the church thing, it's actually a little weird, you know, because we're singing songs, right? You're just kind of here so your friend will like get, get off your back or your family member. Like I went with you that one time. But you don't have to be a Christian to know that there's something terribly wrong with our world. Like from COVID to culture to Congress, right? Just look at Congress and you'll know there's something terribly wrong <laughs> with our world. There's something broken about it. Well, that brokenness that we all know is there is caused by what the Bible calls sin. And you might say, sin, that, that's, that's really cute. That's, that's something, that's a really primitive idea, right? Like, haven't we evolved past this concept of a sin nature and dwelling sin? Like, isn't that like an ancient belief? Like, aren't we more sophisticated than that? I'd say, ah, not so fast though. Because the reality is that nobody truly believes that there's no such thing as sin. Nobody. Nobody can consistently live as though there is no sin. As if all truth is relative, there's no right or wrong. No one can live in that world, consistently at least. See, what we have, uh, our concept of truth in the world, I think, I think very much so in the West, especially post-enlightenment, is that uh, all truth, there, there is no objective truth. Like all truth is relative to like your time in human history mixed with the particular culture that you're in mixed with the particular location that you live. So there is no objective truth. It's just all like contingent on your time, your place, and your culture. That's, that's, that's what you call like moral relativism. So the problem with that, if truth is just a social construct, if sin is just a social construct, then what happens is, is that there are no moral absolutes. There are only moral preferences. If there is no sin, there are no moral absolutes, only moral preferences, which means, and this is why, this is why no one can live consistently with this belief, because that means that all you can say is that you prefer that racism and abuse not exist, but you can't say that it ought not exist. That's all you can say. You can say you prefer it doesn't exist, that's my preference. 
Like you can't look across the table or across the world at anyone else and say that regardless of what they believe, regardless of their time, culture, and place, that abuse, that racism, that oppression ought not exist. If there is no sin, you can't say that. All you can say is that I wish it wasn't the case. If there is no sin, you can only say that you wish things were a certain way. You can't say that things should be a certain way. Which means that if there is no sin, then there is no such thing as injustice. Because injustice according to who? According to you or according to me? If there is no sin, there is no injustice. But even the most dyed-in-the-wool moral relativist knows deep down that that's not true. You see, everything in our world, everything that's wrong in our world and that's wrong in your life is either a direct or an indirect result of the problem of sin. What is sin? Sin is very simply our rejection of God and his authority and purposes in our world. That's what sin is. We have a massive sin problem, but, but not only that, this creates for us another problem. So we have a sin problem. You can't live consistently and not believe that there's sin. We have a sin problem, but here, here's also our other problem. We have sinned against God. The other problem is that forgiveness for that sin always requires payment. Did you know that there's no such thing as free forgiveness? No such thing. Forgiveness always requires payment. Forgiveness of sin always means that someone has to absorb the blow of that sin. Uh, I'll give you an example. So uh, this may not be too hard to imagine. Let's say you got two kids. One of your kids, it comes up to you, they're crying, they have a, a bump on their face and they say that their brother punched them in the face. You may not, that might've been your morning. You don't have to imagine that. <laughs> they come up to you, my brother punched me in the face. And with, with both your kids standing there, uh, you, you have the victim, you have the perpetrator. That's how you talk about your kids, perpetrator. Uh, <laughs> and you look at the perpetrator and you say, you are forgiven for punching your sister in the face. Because it's always the boy punching the girl, right? So you're forgiven. What has happened in that moment? Like you declared forgiveness, but was it free? No, what happened in that moment was that the one who was punched had to absorb the blow of the injustice. You see, the wounded child, in that sense, paid for the forgiveness of the perpetrator. Forgiveness wasn't free. The wounded child paid the cost. Which, by the way, this is one of the reasons, this is why some of you are still angry and bitter at that other person. Maybe you have someone in your mind. Maybe it's one of your parents. Maybe it's one of your siblings. Maybe it's that, maybe it's that friend that you have not talked to 
in months or years. This is why you are still angry and bitter toward that other person because they hurt you, they wronged you, they sinned against you and the thought of forgiving them in your mind is just too much to bear because in your mind you think, I can't forgive them because they need to pay for what they've done. And so that's why you ignore them. That's why you badmouth them to other people. That's why you have locked them in a cage in your heart and you continue to beat them with a stick because they need to pay. They need to feel what I felt when they hurt me. And you think that maybe, just maybe, like if you do that long enough, like if they've, that, that maybe they'll suffer enough to cancel out the wrong that they did toward you. And then maybe, just maybe, at that point, they will have earned your forgiveness. So you know that forgiveness always requires payment. We have a massive sin problem and forgiveness always requires payment. That's why in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, God's wrath against sin requires a payment that you and I cannot afford. And this is the reason for Jesus' death. That if we are going to be forgiven for our sin before a holy God, then someone has to take the blow. So that's the reason for his death. Number two, the author, his authority over death. One thing you'll notice here in John chapter 18 is that when Judas and the company of soldiers come to Jesus, they come at him with, with torches and lanterns and weapons. You can, you can almost, I mean, you can see like they're anticipating a fight right? Like they're anticipating that Jesus is either going to run away or he's going to fight back. And so they have come ready. But what we see here is that Jesus doesn't panic. Jesus doesn't hide, but Jesus in fact steps forward and identifies himself as the one that they are looking for. But don't miss this, that though Jesus doesn't have a weapon, he still strikes a blow. But the blow that Jesus strikes is not with the sword from his hand, but it's with a word from his mouth. Look at chapter 18, verse six. As they're coming to him, he asked them, who is it that you're seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. But then he reiterates again in verse six. Here's what he says. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Do you see what's happening here? What's happening here from the very beginning of his apprehension on his way to the cross that all of, all of those that represent the forces of sin and death and hell cannot stand in the presence of Jesus. Where they fall back on their faces. Just that three little words from his mouth. I am he. Those who represent hell itself cannot stand in the presence of Christ. You see, from the moment of his apprehension, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that they can no more stand in his presence apart from his will than they can take his life apart from his hill. 
from his will. Here's what that means. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay, down, lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. You see, Jesus does not helplessly suffer death. He courageously confronts it. Make no mistake, nobody took Jesus' life. Sometimes, we, sometimes we, we refer to death in that way, right? Like, like, oh, their life was taken. No one took Jesus' life. His life was given on his terms, in his time, in his place. From the moment that he opens his mouth, from the moment he opens his mouth, it becomes abundantly clear that though death is his cosmic foe, it is completely neutered of its power in his presence. Which means for you, that the power of sin, the power of death, the power of hell itself, however it is manifesting itself in your life. I don't know the things that you're going through. I don't know the, I don't know the death that you are experiencing, like, like the people in your life who are maybe in fact physically dying, but the glimmers of death that you are experiencing the effects of sin, either as a result of your sin done by you or done to you, what this means is that everything that is wrong in our world or everything that is wrong in your life cannot ultimately stand in the presence of Jesus. Its power is completely removed. So the reason for his death his authority over death, which brings us to the accomplishment of his death. Jump forward to chapter 19, verse 30. Look what it says. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Finished. He doesn't say, I am finished, like as though he had, he had, fi- he just couldn't take enough, like he couldn't take any more. He'd finally had enough, like finally, like the moment of death, the relief from this pain. I am finished. It's all done. Fine. You win. Jesus doesn't say, I am finished. He says, it is finished. You see, this isn't Jesus waving the flag of defeat. This is Jesus raising the flag of victory. I love the way that, um, One commentator puts it, Henry Staub, he says this. He says, Jesus hanging on the cross was not an object undergoing a process. He was a subject undertaking a work. Did you notice as the scripture was read over us, time and time and time again, it said throughout in chapter 18 and 19 that that this thing happened or this thing was said so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Like this was no accident, though it looks like in these two chapters, it's utter chaos happening. Like his disciples are fleeing swords everywhere. Like what is going on? Jesus is taken away. Eventually they'll flee. Peter denies him. Like what is going on? This is utter chaos. Make no mistake. Everything is going exactly according to plan. Jesus is no helpless victim of death. He is a subject undertaking a work. It is finished. And what was 
finished. What was Jesus referring to when he says, it is finished? Go back to chapter 18. I know we're bouncing around a little bit. Chapter 18, verse 11. So they come to him. Simon Peter draws his sword, cut off this guy's ear, which, by the way, why? Like, like if you're, I mean, if you just stand back and look, you're like, okay, Peter, there's 11 of you. There's a bunch of them. Like, really? You, you're putting everyone else's life in danger by thinking that you're, and he's a really bad aim, right? He's not good enough to just cut off. You have to imagine he's going for his head and he just gets an ear. Like, okay, come on, Peter. So lops off a guy's ear. Jesus is like, whoa, whoa. Not like that. And here's what he says. 18 verse 11, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? What is this cup? With virtually no exception in the Bible, when you see the cup of the Father, the cup of God being referred to, with virtually no exception, it is a reference to God's wrath. It's a reference to God's judgment for sin. Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup of God's wrath for sin itself? And Jesus took the cup of God's wrath, filled to the brim for your sin, and he drank all of it. Every last drop. And so hanging on the cross, Jesus declares that he has ingested within himself God's wrath for our sin. And he declares it is finished, period. It's kind of like when you're at the grocery store and you go to the checkout line and you, you've got one of those cards with the chips, you know, and you stick it in and it's like, like processing, process, and, and it, the cashier is real apologetic. She's like, I'm sorry, our system's acting really slow today. It's like, that happens, you say that all the time. It's just slow. Your internet's just slow, you know? And then you're standing there and if you're like me, you're trying to like, you don't know how long this is gonna take and you don't really like small talk and so you're just kind of like avoiding eye contact with the cashier, you know, because you're like, I don't know what to talk about right now. And this is taking too long, but wait for it. And then finally, it quacks at you. Approved. It is finished. Sufficient funds. You could afford what you bought. Hopefully you know that before you get up to the cash register, but still, it's like, it's a nice affirmation, right? Like this transaction is approved. That is exactly what Jesus is saying on the cross when he says it is finished. The greatest transaction that has ever been made, the greatest exchange that has ever taken place. You see what happened on the cross when Jesus said it is finished, He's saying, I have become rejected so that you could be approved. He's saying, I have emptied my account so that yours could overflow. He's saying, I have taken the rest so that you could receive forgiveness. He's saying, I have taken the blow so that you could be embraced. You see, Jesus' death is unlike any death that has happened in the history of the universe. Because in a world where death is a curse, only Jesus can
can take what is a curse and make it the gateway for our cure. Only Jesus can do that. The perfect sacrifice of God. So what did Jesus dying on the cross accomplish? He accomplished the death of death itself. He took our death and put it in his grave. So finally, number four, how should we respond? How should we respond? Now, there are some of you this morning who aren't Christians. You may be really antagonistic toward Christ, or you may be the kind of person who's like, I'm not really antagonistic toward Christ. I'm just not there yet, you know? I'm just kind of here. I'm just kind of mingling around. I'm, I'm, I'm here because I'm with someone else, maybe. But you haven't yet received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But even you know, you know that there isn't something right about our world. And there may in fact be things about your life that aren't that great either. And so for you, you think that you can just kind of like work your way out of it. Like I'll just work harder, I'll just try harder, I'll be better, I'll do more, I'll get stronger. I'll, get, I'll, I'll read more books. I'll, I'll find like five ways to make my life better. I'll try to implement those things. And maybe I can like smooth things out, either in my own life or kind of in the, in the world around me. And then maybe the few times that you kind of contemplate death, right? Or you, you contemplate God or whatever it is. And it's like, like, what are you gonna do when you meet God the few times you maybe ever think about that is you kind of envision this giant scale where it's like, well, if the good things I do outweigh the bad things I do, then, you know, then, that, then that's good. Like, like, then I'll be fine. Then I'll go to heaven because good people go to heaven, right? So my goal is just to make sure that my good outweighs my bad. But friends, here's the thing. Being a good person removes sin no more than taking a shower cures cancer. I mean, if you have cancer, the sickness within, it doesn't matter what kind of soap you use. It doesn't matter what kind of hair product you use. It doesn't matter what kind of makeup you wear. It doesn't matter like what you like, like how much you build up the, ex, the, the external look of your body. You have a problem. You have a problem within. And when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. He looks at you and he says, stop trying to make yourself better and trust me for what I've done. Stop trusting in what you can do. Stop trusting in how good you are. Being good removes your sin. No more than a shower cures cancer. Trust in Jesus Christ this morning, his finished work on the cross on your behalf. Receive God's grace in Christ through faith. Now, there are those of you who are already Christians this morning. You've already received God's grace in Jesus Christ. And what the death of Christ means for us this morning is not just like a nice reminder, though it is, it's not just a nice reminder of what, of what, like, of what Jesus did. But we should be confronted with the reality that, that we have been forgiven of our sin. We've been freed from the power 
of our sin. We've been freed from sin's power. And now we've been freed for obedience. Maybe you know the, 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 famous, the famous verses here, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Maybe you know this. Here's what it says. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. It's the grace of God, not from your works. It's not what you do. It's what Jesus has done. Absolutely. But then look at what he says one verse later. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Do you see the flow here, Christian? Receive God's grace, respond in obedience. Receive and respond. That's the call of the Christian. And so this morning, as we look at these two glorious chapters of the center of our faith, of Jesus' finished work on the cross, the call for us this morning as those who have received that grace is, are you responding in faithful obedience, empowered by the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done in you and would love to do through you? Are you walking in obedience? Are you walking in the obedience that accords with your faith? Do you even know God's word enough to know what he would call you to do? Christian, how should we respond to the death of Christ? We should joyfully walk in spirit-empowered obedience. The death of Christ was the death of death and is the only way to eternal life. Or I think a better way to say it is in the words of 19th century English poet Samuel Gandy, who said it this way. He said, he in hell, he hell and hell laid low, made sin he o'erthrew, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Let's pray, church. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We lift your name high for your sufficient sacrifice on the cross. It is finished. It is done. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Father, for those who have not yet responded in faith, Oh, would you stir in their hearts this morning to cease from their striving, to stop trusting in themselves to be good enough and to look to the perfect sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, would you empower us as believers to walk in obedience, to care about sin, to care about holiness, to call one another to live according to the faith that we proclaim. Oh, help us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.